Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. on duty yet? No. You call your mom every day, you in Afghanistan? Yeah, I know. Want the sports section? Sure. When a vet comes home, the silences can be deafening. You may not know what to say, but we can help start the conversation. Visit supportyourvet.org. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad. Yeah. You remember that ball game we went to a couple years ago? Sure. And how you didn't have enough cash for two hot dogs, so you walked with me on your shoulders until we found an ATM? And then when we got back to our seats, we never saw the hot dog guy again. Well, I don't remember all that. Yeah, that was an awesome game. You never know which moments will be the ones they'll remember forever. So take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one eight seven seven four dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Stop. 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 The views of the peers of nation talk. The views of the peers of nation talk. Okay. The views of the peers of nation talk are not necessarily the views of talk shows. Generated Productions, Sunnyhead.com.
Because here's the people the nation talk. I'm not much of views. I've talked to you. Generated Productions, SodaRump.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. This is your Sunday evening forum, Nation Talk. Nation Talk is a live public affairs program. It is the issues concerning you from the studios of Savannah, Georgia. In the conversation, call 1724-444-7444. Call ID number 55519 pound. That's 1724-444-7444. Call ID number 55519 pound. Radio spot where Nikki Baker's life it would start pretty normal like this. But, but then, then right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Yeah, she'd be forced to work two jobs, struggling to support herself and her daughter. She feels stuck, stuck, stuck. But stuck. then 
She'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes, study every night, and feel unstuck. Because she'd finally hear someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education, brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. This is the Reverend Congressman Floyd H. Flake. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. had the ability to take contemporary issues and interpret them in a theological context, challenging people to examine their roles as Christians or as members of other denominations that profess to practice goodwill toward all humanity. He made the words of the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament relevant to the poor that he advocated for the brokenhearted to whom he preached the messages of wholeness, those held captive by historical prejudices, persons who were blind to the prospects of an integrated society, and the many Negroes who, although they were legally emancipated, were still victims of a system that condoned overt racism and unfair practices toward them. In Guidelines for Constructive Church, Martin Luther King, Jr. begins by addressing the problem of school segregation that the Supreme Court had declared unconstitutional in 1954. He noted that the court's mandate was for integration to move forward with deliberate speed. But by 1966, the process had been slowed to a crawl. Dr. King recalls the turning point when the Department of Education issued guidelines to every school district directing them to integrate or else lose federal funds. Using Isaiah 61 as his text, he eloquently unveils the guidelines for a constructive church that must be followed if the church doesn't want the funds of grace cut off from the divine treasury. He challenges the church to respond to the human brokenheartedness that invades the life of every human being at some point or another. Second, he calls the church to be true to the mission of fighting racial injustice despite fear of reprisal. He further iterates that in order to follow these guidelines, those in church leadership must be bold enough to proclaim the message of freedom and liberation. Finally, Dr. King announces that the acceptable year of the Lord is now. The failure of the public school system is one of the most glaring problems facing society today. Therefore, the church needs to reexamine itself in relationship to Dr. King's guidelines. I believe that this is the acceptable year to offer options for education to poor children who are stuck in a system that is not preparing them to compete in today's global society. This is the acceptable year to bring relief to the brokenhearted parents who see their children move through the school system by social promotion and come out at the end of the process as functional and, in many cases, dysfunctional illiterate. This is the acceptable year of the Lord to boldly challenge the last vestiges of segregation by gender, class, and race. I want to use as a 
subject from which to preach the three dimensions of a complete life. You know, they used to tell us in Hollywood that in order for a movie to be complete, it had to be three-dimensional. This morning, I want to seek to get over to each of us that if life itself is to be complete, it must be three-dimensional. Many, many centuries ago, there was a man by the name of John who found himself in prison out on a lonely, obscure island called Patmos. I've been in prison just enough to know that it's a lonely experience. And when you are incarcerated in such a situation, you are deprived of almost every freedom but the freedom to think, the freedom to pray, the freedom to reflect and to meditate. While John was out on this lonely island in prison, he lifted his vision to high heaven. he saw descending out of heaven a new heaven and a new earth. Over in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, it opens by saying, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And one of the greatest glories of this new city of God that John saw was its completeness. It was not up on one side and down on the other, but it was complete in all three of its dimensions. And so in this same chapter, as we look down to the 16th verse, John says, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. In other words, this new city of God, this new city of ideal humanity is not an unbalanced entity, but is complete on all sides. I think John is saying something here in all of the symbolism of this uh, text and the symbolism of this chapter. He's saying at bottom that life as it should be and life at its best is a life that is complete on all sides. And there are three dimensions of any complete life to which we can fitly give the words of this text, length, breadth, and height. Now, the length of life, as we shall use it here, is the inward concern for one's own welfare. In other words, it is that 
inward concern that causes one to push forward to achieve his own goals and ambitions. The breath of life, as we shall use it here, is the outward concern for the welfare of others. And the height of life is the upward reach for God. Now you've got to have all three of these to have a complete life. Jesus Christ, he is the creator. Answers with Ken Ham, president of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Every once in a while I'm asked, how can Jesus be the creator when the Bible says that God created everything? Well, the Bible tells us clearly in several places that Jesus Christ is the creator. Colossians chapter 1 states that Jesus is the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and that all things were created through him and for him. And the book of John opens by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say that all things were made by this Word. A few verses later, John tells us that the Word became the God-man, Jesus Christ. Sadly, many Christians tend to think of Jesus as New Testament only. Well, he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, but he was there in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God. You know, as we think about Christ at this time of the year, let's also praise him for being our creator. God's incredible creation is the theme of our next year's Striking Wall calendar. Call us toll-free at 1-888-89-ANSWERS, and next month you'll have a beautiful wall calendar that's also a great witnessing tool. This calendar is yours for a donation of any amount. Call toll-free 1-888-89-ANSWERS, 888-89-ANSWERS, or on the web at AnswersOffer.org. Take a break from your busy schedule and join Harold Sala for Guidelines, a five-minute commentary on living. Grandfather died and left you a rather tidy nest egg. Too large to put in the bank? so you decide to invest it. A friend who knows quite a bit about stocks and bonds gave you a good lead on a stock that has done well in the past. You prayed, and then you bought it. But a year later, the stock is worth about half what you paid for it. You are really worried. Why did God let me down your thinking? We prayed about it, and still the stock didn't do well. Issue. What part does God play in the rise and fall of the stock market? And has he really failed you when the stock market falls? Investments, which are going bad, are on the minds of a lot of people today, including many of you who listen to guidelines. J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, addresses the issue as why up prayers in a down market often miss their mark. He suggests six pitfalls into which we fall which make us vulnerable to misunderstanding, such as I've mentioned. Situations as this happen, says Packer, because of our unwillingness to think. When the market falls like hail that comes from a dark cloud, both the just and the unjust are affected. You have no inside edge on the market because our Heavenly Father knows the future. If the righteous were spared the results of a bad economy, really, Everybody would convert to Christianity. Second, condemned Packer, the unwillingness to think ahead and weigh the long-term consequences of alternative courses of action creates confusion. Someone said, 
75% of all people think they think. 10% really think. And 5% would rather die than think. Seeing the overall picture helps you understand the immediate one, something which is difficult but not impossible. The third reason for our confusion, says Packer, is the unwillingness to take advice. In this, Scripture is emphatic on the need for this. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, says the writer of Proverbs. But he who hearkens unto counsel is wise, says Packer. It is a sign of conceit and immaturity to dispense with taking advice and major decisions. Even if we cannot finally accept their advice, nothing but good will come to us from carefully weighing what they say. You may have prayed before you bought the stock, but did you do your homework? Did you talk to knowledgeable individuals who had no motive for seeing you buy? Reason for unwillingness to suspect oneself. At times, greed gets the better of reason. Thinking about the high rate of return which the broker said the stock would bring, you were driven by selfishness rather than the wisdom of a good investment. At times, we need to ask ourselves why we feel that a particular course of action is the way to go. Is the feeling based on emotion or desire, or one based on solid evidence and past performance? Reason number five, unwillingness to discount personal magnetism. Strong-willed individuals may know a great deal about one thing, but know practically nothing about something else. Yet it's so hard to acknowledge that you really are ignorant about some things in spite of the fact you know a lot about something else. Reason number six, your unwillingness to wait. Greed is the parent of nine-tenths of our financial failures. The seed sown in the ground doesn't produce an immediate harvest. It takes time. So is it with the rest of life. May I leave you with a closing thought? If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. Someone else said that haste is the parent of nine-tenths of our mistakes. You can go to our website and download what you have just heard or listen to it again. It's there to encourage and help you. Go to www.guidelines.org. You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Chang. So if you're the peace, if you're the peace of Nation Talk, are not necessarily views of Talk Cube, com, and sponsors. This is Nation Talk. And we remember Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
gives testimony and gives um, a legacy and gives um, the depth of soul and feeling that the women felt during and after the flood. Award-winning playwright Eventsler. She's the creator of the Vagina Monologues and V-Day, global movement to stop violence against women and girls. She's marking the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina by staging performances of her new work, Swimming Upstream, in New Orleans and Harlem. Today, she joins us in our studio for the hour to talk about the flood, the systematic rape in the Congo, and her own personal battle with cancer. All that and more coming up. to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam. Today, a celebration of the Pacifica Radio Archives and its 47,000 historic tapes. We turn to a rare tape of Martin Luther King after visiting the singer Joan Baez in the Santa Rita Jail in California. They first met years ago, marching against Southern segregation. And to see somebody and hear them talking about the actuality of it, that it was going on, these people were walking, walking rather than taking the buses, and it was so moving, I just sobbed through the whole thing, and, I, and it, it, it turned a corner in my life. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!'s War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A secret appeals court yesterday granted the Bush administration broad new powers to conduct wiretaps and surveillance of people in the United States. The decision overturns a ruling by the secret foreign intelligence surveillance court that had blocked Attorney General John Ashcroft's efforts for fear the new powers would be abused. The opinion was a major victory for Ashcroft, who immediately announced the government will greatly expand the use of the Special Intelligence Court to obtain more wiretaps of Americans. In an unsigned opinion, the appeals court unanimously ruled that Ashcroft was correct in saying that the USA Patriot Act swept away the distinctions between the intelligence and criminal sides of the national security operations. It's not clear whether opponents can appeal the ruling to the Supreme Court. The 1978 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act authorized appeals by only one side, the government. The American Civil Liberties Union assailed the ruling. The lead headline on its website now reads, United States of Surveillance. The ACLU reported the Justice Department can now suspend the ordinary requirements of the Fourth Amendment in order to listen in on phone calls, read emails, and conduct secret searches of Americans' homes and offices. The ruling involves two obscure and usually secretive courts that were created in 1978 by Congress after revelations of CIA and FBI abuses during the Cold War and civil rights eras. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review was set up to handle any appeals of decisions by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The appeals court is composed of three judges 
who were all appointed by Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist. It has never met before. This decision comes on the same day that a San Francisco-based federal appellate court blocked a challenge to the detention of more than 600 suspected members of al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters at the U.S. naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The court ruled that a group of clergy and professors has no legal standing to represent Afghan war prisoners, effectively ending that attempt to mount a court challenge on their behalf. U.S. officials said yesterday ongoing skirmishes over Iraq's no-fly zones constitute a material breach of U.N. resolutions. Iraqi air defenses have tried to uh, down patrolling allied aircraft almost from the time the zones were established, the northern zone in 91, southern in 92. No allied warplane has ever been hit. The Bush administration said yesterday the United States has no immediate plans to bring the issue before the U.N. Security Council, despite President Bush's declaration that there would be zero tolerance, uh, zero tolerance for Iraqi misbehavior. One of the world's worst environmental disasters is feared to be underway as a crippled oil tanker begins to sink off Spain's northwest Atlantic coast. The oil tanker could spill as much as 70,000 tons of heavy fuel oil, about twice as much as the Exxon Valdez released off the coast of Alaska in 1989. An oil slick 70 miles long and five miles wide was reported even before the ship split too. The Israeli Defense Force has been hit by a sharp rise in the number of desertions among its troops. According to a new Army report, military police are dealing with at least 40% more deserters than last year. One report put the increase as high as 67%. Since the beginning of the Intifada in 2000, the Israeli Army has been forced to call up tens of thousands of reservists every month to conduct operations in the West Bank and Gaza.
and the Senate is expected to pass so-called homeland security legislation today. The New York Times columnist William Sapphire, the former speechwriter for President Nixon, wrote in an op-ed piece last week, quote, if the Homeland Security Act is not amended before passage, here is what will happen to you. Every purchase you make with a credit card, every magazine subscription you buy and medical prescription you fill, every website you visit and email you send or receive, every academic grade you receive, every bank deposit you make, every trip you book, and every event you attend, all these transactions and communications will go into what the Defense Department describes as a virtual centralized grand database. To this computerized dossier on your private life from commercial sources, add every piece of information that government has about you, passport application, driver's license, and bridge toll records, judicial and divorce records, complaints from nosy neighbors to the FBI, your lifetime paper trail, plus the latest hidden camera surveillance. And you have the super snoop's dream, a total information awareness about every U.S. citizen. That, an excerpt from William Sapphire's piece in the New York Times. Well, today, we thought we'd go back in time. Never before has it been so crucial to remember the voices of dissent. We're going to turn to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We're going to hear two little-known and hard-to-get speeches that he gave on civil disobedience in wartime. We'll start with an impromptu speech and news conference he gave outside the Santa Rita Jail in California. He traveled there to visit the famous singer and activist Joan Baez and her mother. They had been imprisoned for blocking the entrance to the Armed Forces Induction Center in Oakland. After spending over an hour with Joan Baez, King came outside and was met by a couple of hundred supporters. A Pacifica radio journalist recorded his remarks, and we're going to hear them in a few minutes. But first, we thought we'd talk to Joan Baez herself. We spoke with her late yesterday and asked her to describe the day she was visited by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. in jail. Uh, as I recall it, um, an enormous amount of excitement from the, what we call regulars in jail who were uh, probably 75% black and some Latino, Latina. Um, and then there was the other section, which was us. <laughs> At that point, there were 60-some demonstrators who were still in. Um, Dr. King, when they hear Dr. King was coming, they just went wild. And one woman, this is what I remember the strongest. I, I remember sitting and talking with him. I, I loved him. You know, it was it was just a treat. And I don't know what we talked about. I mean, you know, those things get sort of formal. Um, but uh, one of the regulars dashed past all of the security, and he came carrying in this little cubicle where we were, and he touched him. He touched his arm, and of course he smiled and greeted her. And she, <laughs> she had all her privileges taken away, et cetera, et cetera. She just couldn't care less. It was, it was, this was, you know, a, a magical moment for her, and it was a magical moment for me. 
I never quite believed it that he. I mean, I I knew him and we'd worked together, but that he came out there and what he what he calls inclement weather, <laughs> and it was to greet us was just uh, was a big boost. At the time, uh, he had moved from talking about civil rights here at home to uh, human rights around the world, had come out in strong opposition to the war. It was only a few months before he was assassinated. Exactly. You sang at the People's March on Washington uh, in 1963, We Shall Overcome. So you were with him then? I was. Is that when you first met him? Uh, no, I met him um, in, I think, Grenada, Mississippi. Uh, I, have met, I, can't, I don't remember the very first time I met him formally, but I remember that I heard him speak when I was 15 years old. He must have been 25 at that point, and it was a gathering of uh, high school kids from all around the country. We met at C. Lamar, and we would always have a guest speaker, this time was Dr. King. And... Um, I was already deeply into nonviolence and had had some, you know, had been taught a lot about the history of it. And to see somebody and hear him talking about the actuality of it, that it was going on, these people were walking, walking rather than taking the buses, and it was so moving, I just sobbed through the whole thing. And, I, and it, it, it turned a corner in my life. So that really was the first time that I ever saw him. We shall overcome to a quarter of a million people. Well, those things are such, they're so monumental that it goes beyond stages. An historic moment, and you just don't want to screw up. <laughs> and it was just, a, it was a privilege beyond privilege to be able to do that on that, on that day, to be able to sing. Then five years later, he comes to visit you in jail. And I had done um, work in Grenada, Mississippi. That was probably where I spent the most extended amount of time um, with him, although I went to several of the SCLC um, conferences. But he called me and Ira, whom he mentions on this tape, um, to come to Grenada, Mississippi, because they were throwing rocks at little at black children who were trying to get to school. 
and he couldn't get there because he had other obligations. But, but he knew that if somebody uh, who would draw the cameras would would come to Grenada, if the press was there, that people would stop throwing rocks. I mean, literally, that was the plan. So I went there, and um, and we stayed and we walked the children as far as we could and returned back. And then Dr. King came, and I walked with him um, at the front of the line, taking these two little children up to a gigantic policeman. He just said, um, you, can't go, you can't go any further. And we, you know, we pressed the case, and he said, you can't go any further. And that was probably about the extent of his English. Um, there was a funny moment when I looked across the street and there were little white kids, and they were just pale and frightened and unhappy. And we were, you know, on our line of kids, they were singing and dancing and praying out loud. And I said, Dr. King, <laughs> are you sure you want these kids to end up in school with those ones across the street? And he said, don't say that in front of the cameras, Joan. <laughs> he had a sense of humor that nobody got to share because he had to be—he really had to be serious um, when he spoke in public. So four months after he visited you, um, he was assassinated. Yeah. Your reaction then, and Pardon? your reaction then, and how tied did you think it was to? You know, I, I went numb, and I didn't feel anything, literally anything, until eight years later, and I was watching TV and a documentary came on, and it all, everything, all the feeling came then. I guess that's how close I felt to him, and I just had to block it out. I didn't go to the funeral. And then I saw this documentary, and I just sat, and I just in this pool of tears, and just let the feeling hit, because I really loved him cared about him. Um, I knew that this man, when he when he had to make a decision, would get on his knees and pray if it took until dawn. You know, he would pray until he, the Lord told him what to do. That's listening for the still small voice within. That's what Gandhi did. Um, you wait for direction, and you run out of ideas. You ask for direction, and then King also had that the knack of um, when he would find the direction, he would say it, and people would follow. You can say you can have the certain qualities, but the quality that Gandhi had and, and King had of saying something and having people grab onto it and do it with them at the right time, say the right thing at the right time and the right action. And of course, in the end, the talk that Dr. Martin Luther King gave to the supporters outside the jail. Let me say how happy I am to see each of you here today, and 
I want to commend you for your willingness to engage in this vigil and stand in the midst of this rather inclement weather to express your support for all of those who have been arrested as a result of their courageous actions resisting the tragic, unfair, and unjust draft system of our nation. I've just had the opportunity of visiting my very dear friend, uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and uh, our dear friend, Ira Sandpearl. And they all send their greetings and their best wishes to you. And I might say they are in good spirits. You know, when you go to jail for a righteous cause, uh, you can accept the inconveniences of jail with a kind of inner sense of calm and an inner sense of peace. And this is the way they are accepting that experience. They have supported us in a very real way in our struggle for civil rights, our struggle for freedom and human dignity all across the South. And I decided that in a way or rather as an expression of my appreciation for what they are doing for the peace movement and for what they have done for the civil rights movement, I would take time out of my schedule to come out uh, to see them, to visit them, and let them know that they have our absolute support. And I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be peace. There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. Uh, people ask me from time to time, aren't you getting out of your field? Aren't you supposed to be working in civil rights? And they go on to say the two issues are not to be mixed. And my only answer is that I have been working too long and too hard now against segregated uh, public accommodations to end up at this stage of my life segregating my moral concerns. For I believe absolutely that justice is indivisible, and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I want to make it very clear that I'm going to continue with all of my might, with all of my energy, and with all of my action to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam. Dr. Martin Luther King speaking January 14, 1968, outside the Santa Rita Jail in California. He had just visited Joan Baez and her mother in the jail protesting the draft. We're going to come back to that talk and uh, press conference in a minute. And the choir kept singing of freedom. 
Joan Baez singing here on Democracy Now!, the exception to the rulers. I'm Amy Goodman as we celebrate the 47,000 historical tapes of the Pacifica Radio Archives, digging deep to a rare tape of Dr. Martin Luther King speaking on January 14, 1968, outside the Santa Rita Jail in California after he had visited Joan Baez and her mother for protesting draft, the draft around the Vietnam War. Well, let me say this. I see some very dangerous trends developing in our country, trends of oppression and uh, repression and suppression. And I see a definite move on the part of the government to go all out now to silence dissenters and to try to crush the draft resistance movement. Now, we cannot allow this to happen, and we've got to make it clear. We've got to make it clear that to indict a Dr. Spock or to indict a Bill Coffin and the other courageous souls that have been indicted will mean indicting all of us if they think that this draft resistance movement is going to be stopped. Let us continue to work passionately and unrelentingly to end this cruel and senseless war in Vietnam. I don't have to go through all of the things that this war is doing to corrode the values of our nation. Suffice it to say that the war in Vietnam has all but torn up the Geneva Accords. It has strengthened the military-industrial complex of our nation. It has exacerbated the tensions between continents and races. And the war in Vietnam has placed our country in the position of being against the self-determination of the Vietnamese people. And then it has played havoc with our domestic destinies. And I can never forget the fact that we spend about $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam, and we spend only about $53 a year for every individual who is categorized as poverty-stricken in our so-called war against poverty, which isn't even a good skirmish against poverty. And I say that that is a great need for a revolution of values. And I say to you in conclusion, and I say to you in conclusion that we must continue to stand up and we must continue to follow the dictates of our conscience, even if that means breaking unjust laws. Henry David Thoreau said in his essay on civil disobedience that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And I do not plan to cooperate with evil at any point. Somebody said to me not too long ago, 
Dr. King, don't you think you're hurting your leadership by taking a stand against the war in Vietnam? Aren't people uh, who once respected you going to lose respect for you? And aren't you hurting the budget of your organization? And I had to look at that person and say, I'm sorry, sir, you don't know me. I'm not a consensus leader. And I do not determine what is right and wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a sucher for consensus, but he's a molder of consensus. And on some positions, Howard is asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politics? Vanity asks, the question, is it popular? But conscience asks, the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politics, nor popular, but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And that is where I stand today, and that is where I hope you will continue to stand so that we can speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters all over the world and righteousness like a mighty stream. And we will speed up the day when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations will not rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. And I close by saying, as we sing it in the old Negro spiritual, I ain't going to study war no more. Hey, Dad. Yeah. You remember that ball game we went to a couple of years ago? Sure. And how you didn't have enough cash for two hot dogs, so you walked with me on your shoulders until we found an ATM? And then when we got back to our seats, we never saw the hot dog guy again. Well, I don't remember all that. Yeah, that was an awesome game. You never know which moments will be the ones they'll remember forever. So take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one eight seven seven for dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Is this radio spot where Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right, right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Yeah, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself and her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night and feel unstuck. Because she finally hears someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. I made you some eggs. Thanks, Dad. Is he on duty yet? No. You called your mom every day? You in Afghanistan? Yeah, I know. Want the sports section? Sure. When Yvette comes home, the silences can be deafening. You may not know what to say, but we can help start the conversation. Visit supportyourvet.org. 
Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. This is the story of a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you and Professor Dickie Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find which classes he really needed. You missed the lesson on telling dragons from dragonflies. Right. Um, I want to go to college, so I'm taking Algebra 2, Biology, and a Foreign Language. Foreign Language? You mean so you can talk to unicorns? Well, not exactly. Unless they're French. But Larry had no time for unicorns, or even for Miss Petunia Tootie's time-traveling tutorial, which met every other yesterday at 25 o'clock. Sorry I'm late. My softball game went into overtime. And he knew knowhowtogo.org was way better than hoping for a snockball scholarship. So, while his friends all aced invisibility, when Larry finally got to college, they were nowhere to be seen. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Is this radio? You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. How can a person be protected from scams? With a word of caution for today's ministry leader, here's attorney David Gibbs Jr. of the Christian Law Association. A pastor called the Christian Law Association wondering if a church representative should attend a seminar to learn about compliance with the new health care regulations. There are many so-called experts who will attempt to sell information or a system promising to bring churches into compliance with regulations. Unfortunately, the experts nor their products always deliver what they've promised. If a speaker at a seminar claims to be a licensed CPA or an attorney in a particular state, you can easily check his credentials with the state or the national associations he belongs to in order to protect against any possible scam. All Christian Law Association attorneys are fully licensed professionals. We never charge a fee. We are a ministry defending religious freedom. Get your legal questions answered online at christianlaw.org. You'll find a complete library of information addressing common issues churches and ministries are facing today. Our website again, christianlaw.org. That's christianlaw.org. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kennedy Jenkins. The views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily views of Talk TalkShoe, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. Good evening and welcome 
Back to the second hour of Nathan Talk. I just found out that NBC News is, and YouTube is airing the Democratic debate. Um, in fact, as a matter of fact, it should be on now. So, give me a minute, and I'm going to switch over to to there before I get into any other uh, other items we have for today. Campaign finance system where millionaires 
and this country. Senator, thank you. Thank you. My name is Martin O'Malley. I was born the year Dr. King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, and I want to thank the people of South Carolina, not only for hosting our debate here tonight, but also for what you taught all of us in the aftermath of the tragic shooting at Mother Emanuel Church. You taught us, in fact, in keeping with Dr. King's teaching, that love would have the final word when you took down the Confederate flag from your state house, let go of the past, and move forward. Eight years ago, you brought forward a new leader in Barack Obama to save our country from the Second Great Depression, and that's what he's done. Our country's doing better. We're creating jobs again. But in order to make good on the promise of equal opportunity and equal justice under the law, we have urgent work to do, and the voices of anger and fear and division that we've heard coming off of the Republican presidential podiums are pretty loud. We need new leadership. We need to come together as a people and build on the good things that President Obama has done. That's why I'm running for president. I need your help. I ask for your vote, and I look forward to moving our country forward once again. Thank you. Thank you. All right, to our first question. Now, the first question I'll be addressing to all of the candidates. President Obama came to office determined to swing for the fences on health care reform. Voters want to know how you would define your presidency. How would you think big? So complete this sentence. In my first 100 days in office, my top three priorities will be, fill in the blank, Senator Sanders. Well, that's what our campaign is about. It is thinking big. It is understanding that in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, we should have health care for every man, woman, and child as a right, that we should raise the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour, that we have got to create millions of decent paying jobs by rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. So what my first days are about is bringing America, America together to end the decline of the middle class, to tell the wealthiest people in this country that, yes, they are going to start paying their fair share of taxes and that we are going to have a government that works for all of us and not just big campaign contributors. Secretary Clinton, same question. My first 100 days in office, my top three priorities will be. I would work quickly to present to the Congress my plans for creating more good jobs in manufacturing, infrastructure, clean and renewable energy, raising the minimum wage, and guaranteeing, finally, equal pay for women's work. I would also... I would also be presenting my plans to build on the Affordable Care Act and to improve it by decreasing the out-of-pocket costs, by putting a cap on prescription drug costs, by looking for ways that we can put the prescription drug business and the health insurance company business on a more stable platform that doesn't take too much money out of the pockets of hardworking Americans. And third, I would be working in every way that I knew to bring our country together. We do have too much division, too much mean-spiritedness. There's a lot we have to do on immigration reform, on voting rights, on campaign finance reform, but we need to do it together. That's how we'll have the kind of country for the 21st century that we know will guarantee our children and grandchildren the kind of future they deserve. Thank you. First of all, I would lay out an agenda to make wages go up again for all Americans rather than down. 
uh, equal pay for equal work, making it easier rather than harder for people to join labor unions and bargain collectively for better wages, getting 11 million of our neighbors out of the underground shadow economy by passing comprehensive immigration reform, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour however we can, wherever we can. Secondly, I believe the greatest business opportunity to come to the United States of America in 100 years is climate change. And I put forward a plan to move us to a 100% clean electric energy grid by 2050 and create 5 million jobs along the way. Thank you. I'm sorry, that was second, Lester. And third and finally, we need a new agenda for America's cities. We have not had a new agenda for America's cities since Jimmy Carter. We need a new agenda for America's cities that will invest in the talents and the skills of our people, that will invest in CDBG, transportation, infrastructure and transit options, and make our cities the leading edge in this move to a redesigned, built, clean, green energy future that will employ our people. All right, Governor, thank you. We've all laid out large visions, and we're going to cover a lot of the ground you talked about as we continue in the evening. The last couple of weeks of this campaign have featured some of the sharpest exchanges in the race. We'll start with one of them, the issue of guns. Senator Sanders, last week Secretary Clinton called you, quote, a pretty reliable vote for the gun. Right before the debate, you changed your position on immunity from lawsuits for gun manufacturers. Can you tell us why? Well, I think Secretary Clinton knows that what she says is very disingenuous. I have a D-minus voting record from the NRA. I was in 1988. There were three candidates running for Congress in the state of Vermont. I stood up to the gun lobby and came out and maintained the position that in this country, we should not be selling military-style assault weapons. I have supported from day one an instant background check to make certain that people who should not have guns do not have guns, and that includes people with criminal backgrounds, people who are mentally unstable. I support what President Obama is doing in terms of trying to close the gun show loopholes. And I think it should be a federal crime if people act as foremen. We have seen in this city a horrendous tragedy of a crazed person praying with people in the coming out and shooting nine people. This should not be a political issue. What we should be doing is working together. And by the way, as a senator from a rural state that has virtually no
in control. I believe that I am in an excellent position to bring people together to find the sensible decision. That the question that you did change your position on immunity for gun manufacturers. Can you What I have said is that the gun manufacturer's liability bill had some good provisions. Among other things, we prohibited ammunition that would have killed cops who had protection on. We had child safety protection for gun guns in that legislation. And what we also said is a small mom-and-pop gun shop who sells a gun legally to somebody should not be held liable if somebody does something terrible with that gun. So what I said is I would relook at it. We are going to relook at it, and I will support stronger provisions. Secretary Clinton, would you like to respond to Senator Sanders? Yes. Um, look, I have made it clear based on Senator Sanders' own record that he uh, has voted with the NRA with the gun lobby numerous times. He voted against the Brady Bill five times. He voted for what we call the Charleston loophole. He voted for immunity from gun makers and sellers, which the NRA said was the most important piece of gun legislation in 20 years. He voted to let guns go onto Amtrak, guns go into national parks. He voted against doing research to figure out how we can save lives. Let's not forget what this is about. Ninety people a day die from gun violence in our country. That's 33,000 people a year. One of the most horrific examples, not a block from here, where we had nine people murdered. Now, I am pleased to hear that Senator Sanders has reversed his position on immunity, and I look forward to him joining with those members of Congress who have already introduced legislation. There is no other industry in America that was given the total pass that the gun makers and dealers that's, that's, were, and, and that needs to be reversed. All right, Governor O'Malley, you signed tough gun control measures as governor of Maryland, and there are a lot of Democrats in the audience here in South Carolina who own guns. This conversation might be worrying many of them. They may be hearing, you want to take my guns. What would you say to them? But this is what I would say, Lester. Look, the, I've listened to Secretary Clinton and Senator Sanders go back and forth on which of them has the most inconsistent record on gun safety legislation, and, um, and I would have to agree with both of them. They've both been inconsistent when it comes to this issue. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the one candidate on this stage that actually brought people together to pass comprehensive gun safety legislation. This is very personal to me, being from Baltimore. I will never forget one occasion visiting a little boy in Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was getting a birthday haircut at the age of three when drug dealers turned that barbershop into a shooting gallery, and that boy's head was pierced with a bullet. And I remember visiting him. It did not kill him. I remember visiting him and his mother in Johns Hopkins Hospital, and his diapers with tubes running in and out of his head, same age as my little boy. So after the slaughter of the kids in Connecticut last year, we brought people together. We did pass in our state comprehensive gun safety legislation. It did have a ban on combat assault weapons, universal background checks. And you know what? We did not interrupt a single person's hunting season. I've never met a self-respecting deer hunter that needed an AR-15 to down a deer. And so we were able to actually do these things. All right, Governor, thank you. Secretary Clinton, this is a key.
community that has suffered a lot of heartache in the last year. Of course, as you mentioned, the, the church shootings. We won't forget the video of Walter Scott being shot in the back while running from police. We understand that a jury will decide whether that police officer was justified. But it plays straight to the fears of many African-American men that their lives are cheap. Is that perception, or in your view, is it reality? Well, sadly, it's reality. And it has been heartbreaking and incredibly outraging to see the constant stories of young men like Walter Scott, as you said, who have been killed uh, by police officers. Uh, there needs to be a concerted effort to address the systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And that requires a very clear agenda for retraining police officers, looking at ways to end racial profiling, finding more ways to really bring the disparities that stalk our country into high relief. One out of three African-American men may well end up going to prison. That's the statistic. I want people here to think what we would be doing if it was one out of three white men. And very often, the black men are arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for offenses that do not lead to the same results for white men. So we have a very serious problem that we can no longer ignore. Your time is up. I, Senator Sanders, my next yeah, question is for you. What the Secretary says. We have a criminal justice system which is broken. Who in America is satisfied that we have more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China, disproportionately African-American and Latino? Who is satisfied that 51% of African-American young people are either unemployed or underemployed? Who is satisfied that millions of people have police records for possessing marijuana when the CEOs of Wall Street companies who destroyed our economy have no police records. We need to take a very hard look at the justice system investing in jobs and education, not in jail. Just over a week ago, the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus endorsed Secretary Clinton, not you. He said that choosing her over you was not a hard decision. In fact, our polling shows she's beating you more than two to one among minority voters. How can you be the nominee if you don't have that support? Well, let me talk about polling. The Secretary, the Secretary Clinton, well known. When this campaign began, she was 50 points ahead of me. We were almost three percentage points. Guess what? In Iowa, New Hampshire, the race is very, very close. Maybe we're ahead in New Hampshire. In terms of polling, guess what? We are running ahead of Secretary Clinton in terms of taking on my good friend Donald Trump. Speeding up on 19 points in New Hampshire, 13 points in the last national poll that I saw. To answer your question, when the African-American community becomes familiar with my congressional record and with our agenda and with our views on the economy and criminal justice, just as the general population has become more supportive, so will the African-American community, 
towns and cities alike, it's become a major issue in this race. In a lot of places where you've been campaigning, despite an estimated trillion dollars spent, many say the war on drugs has failed. So what would you do? Well, Lester, you're right. Everywhere I go to campaign, I'm meeting families who are affected by uh, the drug problem that mostly is opioids and heroin now. Uh, and lives are being lost and children are being orphaned. And I've met a lot of grandparents who are now taking care of grandchildren. So I have tried to come out with a comprehensive approach that, number one, does tell the states that we will work with you from the federal government, putting more money, about a billion dollars a year, to help states have a different approach to dealing with this epidemic. The policing needs to change. Police officers must be equipped with the antidote to a heroin overdose or an opioid overdose, known as Narcan. They should be able to administer, so should firefighters and others. We have to move away from treating the use of drugs as a crime and instead move it to where it belongs as a health issue. And we need to divert more people from the criminal justice system into drug courts, into treatment and recovery. And that's so this is the kind of approach that we should take in dealing with what is now a growing epidemic. Senator Sanders, would you like to respond? I agree with everything that the Secretary said. But let me just add this. There is a responsibility on the part of the pharmaceutical industry and the drug companies who are producing all of these drugs and not looking at the consequence of it. And second of all, when we talk about addiction being the disease, the Secretary is right. What that means is we need a revolution in this country in terms of mental health treatment. People should be able to get the treatment that they need when they need it, not two months from now, which is why I believe in universal health care. Mental health care. We're going to get into all that coming up, but we're going to take a break, and we need to take a break, and we'll be back to anger brewing in America. week, Secretary Clinton called you, quote, a pretty reliable vote for the gun lobby. Right before the debate, you changed your position on immunity from lawsuits for gun manufacturers. Can you tell us why? Well, I think Secretary Clinton knows that what she says is very disingenuous. I have a D-minus voting record from the NRA. I was in 1988. There were three candidates running for Congress in the state of Vermont. I stood up to the gun lobby and came out and maintain the position that in this country we should not be selling military-style assault weapons. I have supported from day one an instant background check to make certain that people who should not have guns do not have guns.
Hey, Dad. Yeah. You remember that ball game we went to a couple years ago? Sure. And how you didn't have enough cash for two hot dogs, so you walked with me on your shoulders until we found an ATM? And then when we got back to our seats, we never saw the hot dog guy again. Well, I don't remember all that. Yeah, that was an awesome game. You never know which moments will be the ones they'll remember forever. So take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one eight seven seven for dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. I'm Agent Smix. Thanks, Dad. You see on duty yet? No. You called your mom every day? You in Afghanistan? Yeah, I know. Want the sports section? Sure. When Yvette comes home, the silences can be deafening. You may not know what to say, but we can help start the conversation. Visit supportyouvet.org. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kennedy Jenkins. You are listening to NBC News and YouTube Democratic Debate Live. Not there to come back yet, but we we we're gonna be we, we're gonna return back to um to debate debate. Uh, let's see, let's see now. Looks like they're about to reassemble again, and here we go. Now, the truth is, 
and Franklin Delano Roosevelt having children, you know what they believe in? They believe that health care should be available to all of our people. I'm on the committee that wrote the Affordable Care Act. I made the Affordable Care Act along with Jim Clyburn a better piece of legislation. I voted for it. But right now what we have to deal with is the fact that 29 million people still have no health insurance. We are paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Get it ripped off. And here's the important point. We are spending far more per person on health care than the people of any other country. My proposal, provide health care to all people, get private insurance, out of health insurance, lower the cost of health care for middle class families by 5000 bucks. That's our vision that we need to take. <laughs> I'm not sure whether we're talking about the plan you just introduced tonight or we're talking about the plan you introduced nine times in the Congress, but the fact is we have the Affordable Care Act. That is one of the greatest accomplishments of President Obama, of the Democratic Party, and of our country, and we have already seen 19 million Americans get insurance. We have seen the end of pre-existing conditions keeping people from getting insurance. We have seen women no longer paying more for our insurance than men, and we have seen young people up to the age of 26 being able to stay on their parents' policy. Now, there are things we can do to improve it, but to tear it up and start over again, pushing our country back into that kind of a contentious debate, I think is the wrong way.
Is this radio spot where Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, right, right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Yeah, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself. And her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then, she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night. And feel unstuck. Because she finally hears someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brand.
brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education, brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. We are talking about our world today. Oh, and someone's on the line. Hi, I'm Jacqueline. Welcome, Jacqueline. How old are you? You sound so young. I'm eight. Oh, wow. I assume you're a student, right? Yes, from Jefferson Elementary. And I have a question. Sure. And what's your question? We all know the Earth has seven continents that currently carry 193 countries. Those continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface meaning that the vast majority of our planet, 71%, is comprised of water. Taking into consideration man automatically adapts to environmental conditions, why is it that I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to mypyramid.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. Have you ever dreamed of being a karate master? Uh, yeah! Well, stop dreaming and start jumping with the Karate Glove. Hi, my name's Molly, inventor of the Karate Glove. And I have just one and a half words for you. hi The Karate Glove chops through anything. Just put it on and instantly chop through wood. Concrete. Brick wall. Trees. Small cars. It can even jump through these eight guitars. Uh, yeah. It chops things. If I can invent a karate glove, just imagine what you can do. Visit inventnow.org to get started on your invention. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. It's high on time. <laughs>
this. I'm on the radio, man. <laughs> Modern Love, another hit from his album, Let's Dance. And then uh, two or three years where I really felt like an And he was lost in the wilderness with only his drug spoken language. Uh, it really took me a long time to get back on my feet again and realize that what I really enjoyed doing was the creative process of making imaginative music, not reaching the expectations of an audience. It all began at school outside London in the early 60s. At 16, he already had careful hair and the band. I could count on one hand the people that were, you know, had started playing music that, that young in the school. It was pretty obvious that he had something uh, very early on that was going to blossom. The Gene Genie from 1972. Being an artist, ever since I was a kid, the one thing I really wanted to
outside of the mainstream, you know, because the, uh, the once you get sucked into the middle of the mainstream, it, it's tyrannical in there. It's despotic, you know, and I don't want to be ruled by that blandness, you know. There's nothing in there in the mainstream that I want in my life. I, I it really is it's just not what I want. Heroes from 1977. to 
remind people, you know what, we've got a lot of good things going for us, and if we can get our politics right, it turns out that we're not as divided on the ideological spectrum as people make us out to be. Now, I know in your speech, it's traditional to say the state of our union is strong. When it comes to the emotional state of our union, when I go out and I talk to people, the words I hear them use most often in terms of how they're feeling right now, they talk about fear, they talk about frustration, they talk about fatigue. Any of those words surprise you? No, I think, you know, we went through a lot over these last 10 years. Uh, we went through Katrina, we went through the Iraq War, we went through
only are they carrying attacks out in the Middle East anymore, but they're inspiring attacks in Europe and here in places like San Bernardino, I think even in Philadelphia over the weekend. Your daughters are young ladies. When they get to be your age, President Obama, do you believe in your heart that they'll be living in a world that is dealing with the threat of, of radical Islam on a daily basis? I am absolutely confident we will have defeated ISIS. I don't think we have to wait until they're 54 for that to happen. Uh, ultimately, what ISIL represents is uh, a blind alley for uh, the region, and people will recognize that the same way that over time they turned on al-Qaeda uh, because they saw that this doesn't lead anywhere to get a lot on your plate. And you're nice to spend time with you. I really appreciate okay. it, Mr. President. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Kind of cool about standing with the president in the Oval Office. Not every day it's time for you or me, right? No, it's true. It's not the only time, by the way, that he spoke about his family. He talked about the balancing act of being president of the United States and being a husband and a father, and we're going to talk more about that. As a matter of fact, in our next part of our conversation, we're also going to have some talk about what he hopes that he can inject into the State of the Union tonight that Americans haven't heard before. By the way, tomorrow. Little perspective from the other side of the aisle. We'll sit down with House Speaker Paul Ryan. And in a few minutes from now, we're going to hear from Vice President Joe Biden. He'll be here for a live interview. I'm going to step down to the Navy mess and do that in a couple of minutes. All right. That's how we're going to end our program tonight. And that, on that note, uh, tomorrow morning, at 6 a.m., it's Morning Spaces on Jam Radio 2.1. That's tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. I want to thank everyone who are listening, tuning in, and giving us a listen, inviting us into your homes. Sorry that we that we couldn't get the rest of the debate up. Uh, we try to get the, I don't know, somehow we got cut off, but nonetheless, we got an idea of what's, what, what's going on with the debate. As a matter of fact, I believe it's on now. The, I'm listening to the other room. I believe it's on still. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to, I don't know how long they're going to be on. Um, probably another hour, maybe an hour and a half from now. Who knows? I, I don't know. But, you got a you got pretty much idea of what the just of this debate, the temperature of this debate. Uh, it's like um Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are two favorites in the Democrat. Just have to wait and see. See how how it goes on this election. And by all means, and I say this, and I say it again, and I say it again and again, go out and vote this this coming election. It's very, very important. It's, a, it's, it's very, very important that all of us, and I mean all of us, vote. And, and if you have a have a um, if you have a local election coming up, uh, please by all means
Chinese uh, vote. Tomorrow is MLK is Martin Luther King of Service Day. We are going to end the program with the King Holiday song, King Holiday, King Dream Chorus and Holiday Crew. We're going to we're going to end it end it there. And say good night to you. The views and opinions of the nation talk are not necessarily views of TalkShoe, Generally Production, SoHead.com, and its sponsors. This has been Nation Talk, a public affairs program, airs Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another Nation Talk here on TalkShoe Jam Radio, and tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., for Morning Spaces on Jam Radio 2.1. Go out. Have a wonderful, wonderful, but safe King Holiday. Thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.